0: Last Sunday, we celebrated the Protestant Reformation. It was Reformation Sunday, and it also happened to fall on Reformation Day. And uh, I was, I'm was i always very excited to preach Reformation Sunday. Those topics um, are have always been issues I'm very passionate about. And so I promise myself I'm going to be a little less passionate this Sunday to give you guys a break from the intensity. But I really enjoy Reformation Sunday. I enjoy preaching and talking and discussing Reformation themes and even though it is no longer Reformation Day our text today still has a little Reformation theme in it. And uh, what I found in the text that we have for us today that God has provided for us today is this theme that became the motto of the Reformation. A little Latin phrase known as post tenebras lux. Post tenebras lux is a Latin phrase that was so popular to the Reformation that in the city of Geneva, which was kind of the triumphant Reformation city where John Calvin was one of the primary leaders there that their currency, their money, their, their, their had, had the post-Tenebrous Lux printed in it. That's how important this phrase was to the Reformers and what it means in Latin is after darkness, Light. After darkness, light. It's a very, very loose translation of uh, Job 17.12 from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible for over a thousand years in the Christian church. The Bible translated into Latin. And Job 17.12 says the light is near to the darkness. There is light near to this darkness. Or after darkness, light. This phrase was sort of hijacked by one of the Batman movies in the popular Christopher Nolan trilogy series. And one of the Batman movies' big theme was the, uh, dawn always, uh, the night is always darkest before the dawn. The darkest point of the night comes right before the dawn. There is light close to the darkness. After darkness, light. And what this metaphor means is that God loves to leave glimmers of hope in dark times. That when the Christian church, or even I would say when you as an individual are going through something extremely difficult, extremely painful, you always have reason to believe there is a horizon about to break forth into this darkness. There is light that is near to the darkness. This is how the Reformation viewed the Reformation. They saw the church clouded in darkness and superstition for many hundreds of years, and the Reformation was this light that began to first break forth and to the darkness. We have good reason to take hope and to look for the light at the end of the tunnel in all of our circumstances, so to speak. And I believe that this is incredibly apparent in our sermon text today. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22? 1 Samuel chapter 22. We will read the... we've we've already read through verses 5. We will begin in verse 6, and we'll read the whole chapter, but let's first just read from verse 6 to verse 10 together. If you would follow along, and these are the very words of God. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Let's stop there and briefly recap and summarize, because it's been two weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. So let's remind us where we're at in this moment. So, Saul, so David is running from Saul. David has abandoned, not abandoned, but he has left Jonathan and he is running from Saul. And what we've seen over the last few times we've been in Samuel is he went to the priest and he deceived the priest. He lied to the priest about why he was there. And the priest gave him bread to sustain him and gave him Goliath's sword for protection. At which point David was forced to hide out in the Philistine city of Gath where he was arrested and brought to the king of Gath, but he, the Lord gave him the wisdom to pretend to be a madman. He pretended to be a crazy person. And the king said, I want nothing to do with this crazy man. Get him out of here. And so David then flees to this hillside that was famous for having these large, deep caves. And he went and hid out in these caverns just outside of Judah. And many people, 400 people roughly, from Israel heard about this and they came to meet him, including his family. And so the text where the last time we were at ended with David hiding out in these caves with this small little resistance army, if you will. And so the text this morning begins with Saul who has gathered his servants and he's having a little pity party. He's under the amorous tree, he's playing the victim, and he's whining about how everyone has betrayed him and conspired against him. And why does he see his own servants as having conspired against him? And that's because no one told him about what was going on. His very own son was having this conspiracy theory party with David behind his back, conspiring against him, and and no one decided to tell Saul, hey, you might want to know what's going on here. No one gave him any information. No one had led him on. So here is Saul playing victim. Woe is me. Boo hoo. Everyone's against poor little Saul. I also, just as a side note, find it interesting. Saul. At one point, among his vast array of servants and followers, he, he specifies the people of Benjamin where David is from. And he probably sees them as maybe having some special affinity to David. And he asks rhetorically, like, why are you guys taking David's side? Do you think David is going to make you commanders of thousands and give you this and give you that if he becomes king? And it's amazing to me, this is just a side note, how often ty- ty- tyrannical leaders in their own minds conceive of themselves as benevolent. Right, Paul, Saul has this very twisted view of himself. He sees himself as this benevolent leader who gives these people all of these things. Is David going to be as loving and kind as I am? And I, I, just, I haven't done a whole lot of reading in history, but it's not uncommon for tyrants to think they're benevolent. Saul thinks he's this awesome benevolent leader and everyone's out against him. He's having a little pity party. And then an important character shows up. Doeg. We briefly learned about Doeg in chapter 21. It was just a small little phrase. We were reminded that as David was seeking refuge in the temple, that there was an Edomite who we don't even know much about him. But for some reason, this Philistine, this non-Israelite, was close to Saul and was given authority over Saul's herdsmen. So Saul is already friends with the enemy. And so there's this Edomite living among the Israelites. And we are told in the previous chapter, just briefly, that he saw what happened with David. And that's all we were told. And then the text just moved on. And now we're finally seeing the relevance of that. This Edomite saw what was happening. And when Saul is throwing his pity party, the Edomite steps up and says, I've got information that I'm willing to tell you. I saw the priests help David. And so this now, we've been caught up, this enters in the darkness. The rest of the portion we're going to read today becomes very dark. The sun is about to go down on Israel. Enter the darkness, verse 11, if you would read with me. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given and have inquired of God for him, so that he is risen again, I in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son in law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman and child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. I want to stop there. Darkness has fallen over Israel. Saul has brought the priest and his entire household. All of the priests and all of their sons have been brought to Saul, and Saul accuses them of helping his enemy David. And what's interesting is the priest does admit, Himelech does admit, yes, I did help David, but his reasoning was so sound. His reasoning to Saul was extremely sound. He, he, he told Saul, first and foremost, the most important thing is, I didn't know about all this drama between you guys. I've, I've not, I'm not in the know. And so he says, Saul, put yourself in my shoes. I'm the priest, and here comes David. And he, the only thing I know about David is that he's your son-in-law, and that he's the commander of your armies, and that he lives in your royal house, and that I've helped him in the past, and you've never gotten mad at me for it. So what on earth was I supposed to do? He's essentially saying, I was honoring you by helping David. As far as I knew, he was your beloved son-in-law who won your battles and lived in your house, and he came to me and needed help, so I helped him. But Saul is so steeped in sin, he's so angry and jealous and far from God, all he heard from that, he was, he's not at a place to listen to reason. All he heard was a confession, yes, I helped David. And so the priest became an enemy of the state, and Saul decides to slaughter his entire house. And not just his entire house, not just literally ends the line of the priesthood in Israel. Saul is now attempting to cut the priesthood away from the people of God entirely. And he goes so far in this, they go to the city of Nob, and Nob was the holy city at this time. This is where the priests and their families live, and they slaughter everyone and everything. They leave no trace of the priesthood in Israel. And you know what's ironic about this? You want to know, do you remember? It we've, it's okay if you don't. We've been through a lot in 1 Samuel. But do you remember the, the straw that broke the camel's back when God finally told Saul, I'm done with you, I'm going to raise up another king? It's when Saul was supposed to slaughter everyone, woman, child, dog, of Amalek, the Amalekites and he refused. So look at how twisted Saul has become. He wasn't willing to commit genocide against the enemies of God, the people God commanded him to, but then he's perfectly willing to slaughter the women and children of his own priesthood, his own people. That's how twisted and deranged Saul has become. And by the way, all of his servants are guilty of this. Be careful. Don't do what I read. The first time I read through this, I thought well of his servants because they, they didn't kill the priests. They said, no, Saul, this is wrong. But then I thought, no, 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 that can't be the case here because we are told that he killed over 80 people. And then they went into Nob and slaughtered everyone. you think Edom, Edom the Edomite, do you think Doeg did that all by himself? One man, verse 85, he wins. Was it just Saul and Doeg and Nob killing all those people? Were they capable of doing that? No. You want to know what I think is actually happening here? We are seeing the stupidity and sickness of hypocritical religion. Saul's servants are perfectly willing to slaughter Israelite women and children. They're perfectly willing to hold the priests captive to be killed, but they're not willing to actually lay their hands on the priests. And why is this? Most likely, the text doesn't tell us, but I think the best way to speculate is the Old Testament is pretty crystal clear. Thou shall not touch the Lord's anointed. A great curse would come upon the man who dared to touch the Lord's anointed. So here they are. They're taking this Old Testament law and they're treating it superstitiously. I'm not going to be the one to touch the Lord's anointed. You You let the Gentile kill the priests. I wonder if the law says anything about slaughtering your own women and children. I wonder if the law says anything about holding the priests captive so that others can kill them. This is, this is superstitious religion. These are people who don't care about the law. They don't care about God. They don't care about holiness or righteousness. These are wicked, evil people. But they're superstitious, so they don't want to be the ones to kill the priests. Let someone else do it. Saul and his people are wicked. And they have, they have ended the priesthood. Which, by the way, is actually a fulfillment of God's curse against Eli from way back in the beginning of the book. You see the way God fulfills his plans, even through evil intentions and wicked men? The fulfillment of the curse of Eli is continuing into our day. And so let us, before we talk about the light and the darkness, I want to talk about this darkness for a minute. I want to remind us of that what we are seeing in Saul is the folly and depravity of sin, I think one of the best ways for us as Christians to to mortify our sin, to to put up a stronger effort against our own sin, is to be reminded of just how destructive and dark and dangerous sin is. So keep your marker here and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we will begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions That's a long passage, and we're not going to cover every detail of that, but I want to focus on just a, a handful of things here. In verses 21 and 22, we are told that people who know the truth, they know God, they know His existence, His eternal power, and this, by the way, is, is referring to all of mankind. Saul is uniquely culpable because he has been given more light than just the light of nature. Saul not only has the light of nature, but he received the law of Moses. Moses. He's been given more light and more revelation. He has been touched by God in ways that the pagans around the world have not been touched. He is even more accountable for what he knows of God. And Saul, like all other pagans, has taken what he has known to be true and he has rejected it. He has walked from God. He is far from God. And what happens to those who are far from God? The text, three different sides, says God gives them up. This is an amazing concept here. God giving men up or giving men over. You know what that means? Even in wickedness, even in sin, when when we experience the wickedness and sin of other people, we have reason to praise God. You want to know why? Because the Bible tells us that even among sinners, God is restraining them. It's not as bad as it could be, and that's not because of benevolence on behalf of the sinner. It's because of benevolence on behalf of God. Who is restraining individuals? But the text tells us that some people can resist so much; they can continue to work against what they know to be true so much that God lets go of that restraint. He gives them over. He says, "Fine, go have fun with your sin." He gives them up to their passions and to their sin. And a few things happen from this. Verses 21 and 22 says they become futile in their thinking. They become fools. Saul has become a fool. What Saul is doing right now is political, social suicide. Think about where Saul is after these events. Who are who Saul's allies? Who are Saul's friends right now? Doeg. He's alienated himself from David, his champion, his warrior, his son-in-law. He's alienated himself from Jonathan, his very own flesh and blood. He's alienated himself from Mishal, his very own flesh and blood. Hundreds of people have fled Israel to fight with David. He has a priesthood, slaughtered him. He doesn't have a priesthood. He doesn't have David. He doesn't have his family. He's losing grip over all of Israel. And by the way, even his evil servants who are with him doing his bidding... You can imagine that they're not super pleased with Saul for two reasons. He just got done giving a little rant under the amarisk tree about how they're all deceivers and traitors. And then he tried to make them kill the priests, which none of them wanted to do. They see Saul as being this mean dad who's spanking them and pushing them further and further away. Everything Saul is doing is political and social suicide. It's foolish. So why is he doing it? Saul's not a dumb guy. Go back and reread through 1 Samuel. Part of the reason why Saul had such great success at the beginning of his kingdom because he was a very smart man. He was the one as they were going against the Philistines who stopped and planned and devised and they won because of his military prowess. He was a bold man. He was a smart man. He's not a dumb guy. So why is he being so dumb? Because sin has no interest in reason. Sin clouds your reasoning. It corrupts your reasoning. Sin is by definition foolish. It is anti-reason. When we pursue sin, we are always pursuing foolishness. Always. And this is why, by the way, we have no problem in the Christian world with understanding that some of the smartest people in world history have rejected Christianity. That's no problem for us. That doesn't mean Christianity is wrong or something that only stupid people believe, but because even really, really smart people, if they've been given up to their sin, who fall in love with their sin, will do anything to maintain their sin, to continue in their sin, even if it means taking all the areas of life where they're really, really smart and just being not very smart in this area. You know, I've always thought that about ancient people groups, like the Egyptians, for example. The Egyptians were not dumb people. We live, one of, one of my least favorite things about the society and the world that we live in today is the, is the intolerable, insufferable arrogance by which we look at the past with. It drives me bonkers. How many elites in our society think the people that have come before us are morons because they didn't have electricity and cell phones? Those dumb flat earthers. <clears throat> Do you know for the vast majority of human history, people believe the earth was round? We figured that out way before satellites. Way before satellites. You do just an emoticum of research on some of these ancient civilizations, and you will find these people are way smarter, no offense, than anyone in this room. These people were geniuses. You think Rome was built by a bunch of idiots? But they, you Just study ancient Egypt. The things they were able to do with what they have will blow your mind away. Modern scientists study the pyramids and still don't have them figured out. We don't have a clue how these people knew the things they knew. The geometry, the science, the physics. It's amazing what these people accomplished. These were brilliant, brilliant people. But they worshipped birds with dog heads. Why? Because you can be smart in a lot of areas. But once you're confronted with the gospel, once you're confronted with the truth that you know to be true, to repent of your sins, to give up your sins, you will do anything to not repent. A more modern example of this, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Joe Rogan. He's an MMA announcer, but he's a stand-up comedian. But the primary way he's made his money is through a podcast. He has the most listened-to, downloaded podcast in the world. And let me tell you, Joe Rogan is a smart guy. You don't become a millionaire accidentally. He's a smart guy. And I've listened to a lot of Joe Rogan interviews. Interviewing is harder than it looks. It's hard to ask good questions. He's a a good questioner. People listen to him, not just because he has interesting people on, but because he asks good questions. He's a smart man. And I agree with him on a lot of things. But there's been these clips going around. And one of the things he'll do, he'll have a guest on, and any time a guest says something controversial, he has a guy on a computer start looking it up. So he he holds people accountable for their words. He says, wait, 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 let's look that up. That sounds crazy. It's like on-the-fly fact-checking. He holds you accountable. He has good questions. He's a smart guy. He's a rich man. But I saw these clips going around this last month of him talking about Christianity. Now Let me just say, I'm in control of my emotions right now. I'm not, I'm not losing my... I've picked my words out for this sermon very carefully, okay? I'm, I'm using this word intentionally. The things Joe Rogan said about Christianity are stupid. I'm using that word very intentionally. I'm not emotional. They're dumb. He said some of the dumbest things I've ever heard. He said things so stupid. He could have just had Jamie look it up. All he had to do was Google search. He made the claim that, that Constantine picked the books of the Bible. Google it. That never happened. Never came close. Constantine, had, we have no evidence whatsoever that the, the books of the Bible ever came off his lips from the moment he was born to the day he died. The Council of Nicaea never touched the canon. He said stupid things. He's not a stupid man. So why, suddenly talking about Christianity, is he so dumb? Because he loves his sin. That's what the text is telling us. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they worshipped frogs and birds. Because they loved their sin. Saul is a political fool. Fool. He has no idea what he's doing. But that doesn't matter because sin is not reasonable. Sin is not reasonable. God gives us up to our sin and our thinking becomes futile. Smart people become dumb when they choose sin over glory. But it's not just our thinking that becomes infected. In verses 28 and 29, we are given up to a debased mind to pursue debased passions. And by the way doesn't doesn't verse look at with me specifically at verse 29 doesn't this so perfectly describe Saul They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. That's Saul. He's envious of what David has. He's envious of what he's loo- losing. And so that it's filled him with malice. He wants to hurt people. He's angry. And that malice, that envy has led to malice. And that malice has led to murder. And he's murdered the priesthood. This is the perfect description of Saul. Saul is our case in point example of how dangerous it is for us to follow our sin. It's dangerous. And apart from the grace of God, there is no end. That's what Romans 1 is telling us. You think there's a place where people will sin here, but they'll never go there. And even in our modern day culture, we see people go to these horrible extremes, and so how do people try to get around it? It must be a mental illness. Because we just can't understand why someone would do some of the things we read about in the news. That's because sin is Insatiable apart from the grace of God, you will pursue it until the day you die. And you will never stop digging that hole. This is why the world is so dark. And this is why being a Christian can be so difficult. Because sin is this horrible, insatiable thing. It ruins lives and it ruins the world. It ruins Saul. And it's almost ruined Israel. But I say almost because even in the midst of this, the horrible sin that people choose and pursue and are overcome by, there is always light after darkness. There's always a glimmer of hope. Turn back to 1 Samuel 22. Our story is not over yet. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub... Named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Saul did not manage to kill. Every priest. One young man got away. One young descendant of the priest managed to escape the grips of Israel and he has fled to the remnant. He's found David. He's found the cohort. And this is our glimmer of hope. We have a, an amazing glimmer of hope as one of the priests managed to find David. He managed to find remnant God has providentially saved one man from this slaughter and so here's what this little remnant now has in the midst of all this darkness they're they're hiding out in caves they're outnumbered and their friends and their family and the religious leaders have been slaughtered this is not a good day for the remnant but there's hope and why is there hope and as we peruse the landscape of this group of 400 men, we see the very foundations of Israel present among them. Well, what do I mean by that? Abiathar is a priest, a legitimate son in the lineage of priests. He has escaped and gone to the remnant, so the remnant maintains the priesthood. They have a priest among them. And who did Abiathar flee to? He fled to David. And who is David? The rightful king of Israel. The anointed king of Israel. So among this little remnant group, they have the priest. They have the king. And we were told, by the way, you probably don't recall in chapter 21, verse 5, that the reason David went where he went is because there's a guy with him named Gad. Gad is the one who sent him to the forest, to the hills. Who is Gad? It's the prophet. Israel has the priest. Saul has no priest. He killed them all. Israel has a prophet. Saul has no prophet. Samuel abandoned him. Israel has a true king. Saul is a deposed king. Saul has no priest, no king, no prophet. That's with the remnant. So even as we look at the darkness and we see the murder and the bloodshed and the evil, do you see the hope? Something is being built among this remnant here. Good things are happening. You look at this from afar and you think, you know what, the guys who I thought were underdogs, that's actually the winning team right now. They're losing in this moment, but they have the foundations. God established the kingdom of Israel on these three foundations. He gave them prophets. He gave them a priesthood. And in 1 Samuel, he gave them their king. This is the threefold ministry that the kingdom of God is built upon. And Saul has no pillars. And David has them all. You see the little light in this darkness? Something is happening in these hills and these caves outside of Judah. And it's pretty awesome. The remnant has not been destroyed. God's people have not been overtaken. And this becomes an important message for us. Why? Because the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, Israel, is a typological picture of the kingdom of God today, the Christian church. So in the hope we see here in Israel, we need to take that hope and apply it to all of our present circumstances. Darkness clouds the church of God often. But we always have hope. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 13. You've heard this, we've, we've read this many times in this sermon series alone, let alone in this church, but let's read it again. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a promise. In the first century, Christ promised to lay a foundation and to build that church, the gates of Hades shall never overcome it. That church will never die. That church will never be destroyed. The church cannot be conquered. It cannot be removed from the earth. This does not mean emphatically that we as individual Christians don't go through hard times. Just ask the priesthood of Israel if, the, if people in the kingdom of God can go through hard times. Yeah. Bad things can happen to us as Christians. But as a corporate people, we are victorious. We are inconquerable. That's the hope that the priesthood escape gives us. I love the way one commentator put it. He says it this way, This does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all God's servants. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. The body of Christ will never die, so no matter what we are going through, no matter what the church is going through, we always have this light that is near to the darkness. And we ask the question, how? How can we have such confidence? How can we have such assurance? Look again at verse eighteen. Jesus says, "And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build. Why can we trust that the Christian Church is inconquerable? Because we're not building ourselves. <laughs> This is not a, a self-construction project. If the church was self-building, we wouldn't have made it a day. There's no way the church gets out of the first century. No way. But we're not builders. Well, we are. But we've been commissioned by the great builder. Jesus is building His church. He's the builder we are not. And by the way, it's His church. It's not ours. That's our other confidence. Jesus and not say, I will be your builder and build your church. I will build my church. Jesus is the foundation that we need to have all the hope and confidence and trust in the world no matter how things go. At the end of the day, no matter how dark things are, here's what the Christian church can say Jesus is on our team. That's all I need. That's all I need. And by the way, why is that? Because Jesus is our threefold ministry. David's remnant had prophet, priest, and king. That's the hope they're left with at the end of the butchering. They have prophet, priest, and king. No matter what we as a Christian church go through, in Christ, we have our prophet. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is our prophet who reveals God to us. We always have our prophet present in the church, a prophet far greater than Gad. In the Christian church, we always have the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have a high priest who lives forever, who intercedes for us forever, and he is unlike the priests of Israel, unstained and holy, exalted above the heavens. We have our prophet, we have our priest, and I keep this in mind, we also have our king. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Christian church we have our threefold ministry. Our prophet greater than the prophets, our priest who fulfills and is greater than all the priests, and the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and so we as the Christian church today, we are like David's remnant. And sometimes it looks like the world is winning around us. But we have light in the darkness. And Jesus is building and shepherding his church. And by the way, I know you've heard this theme before. I've preached this very sermon in 1 Samuel where I was hesitant to go this direction because I've gone this direction before but I want us to understand why we can expect to see this. What is First Samuel about? The whole book of First Samuel is God making a king and establishing and fulfilling a kingdom. And so it makes sense to us that one of the predominant themes throughout this book will be God's ability to providentially and powerfully build, serve, shepherd, and protect his kingdom. And this is all type and shadow of the Christian church today. We are individual members of the kingdom of God. And so what we take from 1 Samuel is God is capable of building his kingdom, of protecting it and continuing it. So we're going to see this theme probably more. And we need it. In the days in which we live, we need it. We need to be reminded that the church of God cannot lose. We can't. To summarize that point in conclusion better than any words I have, let me quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith what they say about this unconquerable church. This Catholic invisible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by His own presence and spirit according to His promise make them effectual thereunto. This Catholic church hath been sometimes more or less visible. And particular churches which are members of it are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, the ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, And some have so degenerated as to become apparently no churches of Christ at all. But nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. For there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ.